Welcome to the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society. Welcome to ITSP Magazine. Let's face it, the future is now. We're living in a connected cyber society, and we need to stop ignoring it or pretending that it's not affecting us. Join us as we explore how humanity arrived at this current state of digital reality and what it means to live amongst so much technology and data. Knowledge is power, now more than ever. Black Cloak provides concierge cybersecurity protection to corporate executives and high net worth individuals to protect against hacking, reputational loss, financial loss, and the impacts of a corporate data breach. Learn more at blackcloak.io. BugCrowd's award-winning platform combines actionable contextual intelligence with the skill and experience of the world's most elite hackers to help leading organizations identify and fix vulnerabilities, protect customers, and make the digitally connected world a safer place. Learn more at bugcrowd.com. On. Remember that time? Oh yeah, think great, about it. I think about it all the time. <laughs> <laughs> Is that that time in that place? It, it, it was in that place. Yeah, all the was, uh, all the way there. All the way there. It was it was a few minutes to get there with all that uh, food, and it was a time. There was a lot of food actually. But yeah, I, I go where the food is. So. Yeah, well, that's that one is a great place for food. You can try everything you want, and you even try some disgusting stuff that I would never try. But you, know. you didn't follow me the whole way down my uh, food. Not in the rabbit hole. No. Not in the food rabbit hole. I'm not. I'm not afraid. I have uh, some standards. I'll, I'll go for it. <laughs> so what? What's that place? Singapore. Uh, well, right? that place in particular is Singapore, and. Uh, yeah, I think uh, Asia Pacific in general is just a phenomenal region. Oh yeah, with with loads of things. And if I'm not eating food, I'm uh, diving, looking at food underwater Are you as, they, as they swim by me, <laughs> so I, which I did uh, on the east coast of Australia at one point. Uh, there you go. Which is always fun. That we're not here to talk about eating and no, diving. No, because at that time is actually that time that we were at RSA conference in Singapore and we met Charity and she's back. We've been in touch since I'm thinking it's mm -hmm. three years ago. <laughs> Hi guys, it's Ooh. good to be back. Hi Charity. I, I always really remember that that conversation and a few others that I don't know for some reason that that event was quite magical maybe because it wasn't that busy like the RSA here in, in the United States. It was more manageable. And you're kind of surrounded by, know, again, a different culture, a different environment. Maybe, maybe that's what it is. But uh, a lot of things happened since, right? Man, COVID happened right <laughs> after that, right? <laughs> yeah, pretty much. A few yeah. months after that. The yeah. world is a different place now than it was back then a few years ago. It sure yes. is. It sure is. Yeah, you look, and, you look uh, back at yeah. the pictures and, and they, uh, they change dramatically in what what the scenery looks like. <laughs> yeah. 
not, not only at a personal level though but uh, even if we want to start talking about on this channel which is redefining society a lot of things have changed on the societal level too like politics and uh, you know cyber crime hasn't stopped we haven't completely stopped it yet <laughs> we, yeah really ransomware ever. has been topping the headlines yeah, the train's yeah. still running yeah, yeah. Those, yeah. Those, those those tracks are continuing to be uh, placed in front of the train as well. <laughs> yeah. So let's do this charity. Uh, we've done few podcasts together, and uh, that was a while back. So how about starting with a little introduction about yourself, what you do, which is fascinating, and uh, for our audience that maybe haven't heard any of our conversation and then we, we we dive in into i don't know what you're most interested in now about what happening in the world okay of, uh, threats and security sounds good um my name is charity wright i'm a threat intelligence analyst at recorded future i currently work on the geopolitical intelligence team so um, pretty exciting. We monitor all major world events going on and all types of different intelligence related to uh, how are nations, um, you know, how's their relationships, how are they communicating with each other, but also just societal stuff. So I'm really excited to be here on this show. Um, my background was U.S. Army. I was a Chinese linguist and intelligence analyst at NSA. Uh, so that's how I got started in the intelligence sector and I just fell in love with it and um, decided to come over to the private sector and work for cyber threat intelligence teams. So I have some experience analyzing malware and uh, nation state, you know, uh, threat groups um, and, and hacking activity. But, and now I get to return to my roots of really analyzing international relations. Uh, it's a, a super interesting space and I want to, Thank you again, Charity, um, for joining me in, in my class at Pepperdine for sharing some of your thoughts on threat intelligence and threat hunting. And uh, I know the 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 the, uh, the classmates enjoyed that conversation. And the one thing I remember from that, which I think is relevant for for this conversation, is I think early days, at least my perspective, early days of cybersecurity, information security, uh, was trying to reverse engineer things how how is something working so that we can then identify it at scale and hopefully put countermeasures or controls or protections in place and it, it seems to me that information at a societal level is much more open and i don't know maybe maybe you still have to reverse engineer the information in, in society but it, it seems to me that information is open and public. Yes, there's a dark web. But mm -hmm. I guess my question to kick things off is, what what's that look like in terms of openness, secrecy? And obviously, we're going to talk about misinformation, which is very open and, and prevalent, but also fake. <laughs> yeah. Well, the lines are blurred. Um, you know, we've got 95% of of Americans and 96% of Canadians on the internet. Um, that's a lot of people online sharing information, sharing their personal views on things. And all of a sudden the lines are blurred between what's real, what's opinion, what's fact, what's fake. Um, people are standing up their own websites claiming to be news agencies when they're not journalists at all. And they don't 
uh, follow journalistic standards. Um, so it's confusing and everything is like muddled and people are asking, how do we know what's truth versus fiction? How do we know what's real? And a lot of people are confused and they're frustrated because they don't know where to go for information. So they just either write it off or obtain all their news and information from social media, which is even worse. Yeah. Oh, but so, I'm going to take this quickly, Marco, before you jump yeah. in. Because I remember, and I don't know how long ago this was, a different conversation I had where somebody was saying that their children don't have one identity online. They have many. And they'll pick the persona uh, that they want to portray at that given moment, sometimes multiple personas at once throughout the day. And I guess my point is with that is it's not just one device, one person, one identity, one persona. We have people acting as different things and perhaps even intentionally or unintentionally playing different messages and different sides and, and different games. Yep. Uh, how, how do you see that in, in some of the things that you're exploring? Well, you know, in a professional capacity, we're looking at the authenticity behind accounts. We're looking for coordinated inauthentic activity. So any signs of, let's say, a PR company conducting illegal business, um, trying to create all these bot accounts um, and make people believe that they are, let's say, just normal consumers when really they're being paid to create fake accounts and, and try to change people's minds about things and sway their opinions about products in the market. So we look for coordinated inauthentic activity. But on a personal level, I can tell you it's been pretty crazy on, let's say, Facebook, Twitter, all, all, all the social media, even on TikTok, um, to try to figure out who you're really engaging with. You know, sometimes I'm in like a Facebook neighborhood group, and I think that I'm talking to a neighbor, but really, uh, we have evidence that there have been foreign agents infiltrating local groups to try to sway opinions and divide Americans on things. And that's not just America, it's all over the world. So it's really interesting to see how all the way from, you know, let's say somebody's trying to create a fake account because they want to pretend to be somebody else, let's say catfishing <laughs> on a personal level, all the way up to like nation states using intelligence agents to sway opinions or divide, you know, democratic societies. So it's, it's really crazy. It's uh, kind of confusing to figure out. Well, it, it is really confusing. And I feel like sometimes people just answer like, well, you're entitled of your opinion. I'm entitled of my own opinion, but mm -hmm. this is not an opinion. This is a fact. <laughs> you know, one thing is to have an opinion about a fact yeah. One thing is about deciding, no, I believe, you can believe that- My the, opinion's fact. <laughs> yeah, that the planet is, uh, you know, round or- It's a triangle sphere, today. It's or right. triangle, and it's like, well, I'm going to believe that. Yeah. And, well, we cannot have a, a civic conversation on that if you start with that, right? Like, right. So I feel like it's it's a different world, compare of the one that we used to have even a few years ago because mm -hmm. in a way lying outline has become a way of life uh politicians don't even pretend anymore there's always mm -hmm. been propaganda there's always been like let me tell that story in my way 
now mm-hmm. it's it's like right there in the open like yes. um, so that that's scary and i feel like there are certain technology that are empowering this i mean we talked about fake not only the fake news but you know fake video fake uh, photo fake report fake uh, newspaper and uh, news agencies so mm-hmm. that influence also the conversation at a higher level it's not just about the neighborhood it's not just about my conversation with sean and we go at it right it or it's like then you're gonna go vote you're gonna change the opinion about you know mm-hmm. other people and who is gonna go to the government and who what kind of international relationship they're going to have with others. So I just want to like make this overview to say it's all connected in a yeah. democracy, especially it's all connected. So what, yeah. what's your take on that? And well, what can we do about it? I think we're at a, a really important um, point in our history of, of technology where let's say, okay, the United States created the World Wide Web. That's a fact. Um, it was promoted as this free, open space for the exchange of information. It's going to empower people all over the world. It can be used for, um, you know, keeping countries and organizations accountable for human rights violations. All different, you know, great benefits. Um, digital work, all this stuff, and it is great. Um, and we want to keep it open and free. But we also have a crisis, a disinformation crisis, where we are trying to decide how much do we need to censor or keep accountability of the lies, of the fake images, of the fake videos. Do we censor it or do we just call it out? Uh, Maybe put a warning flag on it that says this has been proven to be false. And so we're at this place where it's kind of like, Countries and governments are are trying to take charge and figure out what to do. The democratic countries, the Western free liberal order is going, hey, we need to keep this as open as possible. Um, earlier this year, the Biden administration, the White House put out uh, like a declaration of the freedom of the Internet, basically saying we want to promote a free, open exchange of information. Um, and that is in direct response to authoritarian governments like China and Russia that are trying to nationalize the internet um, and make everybody take, uh, you know, very strict control uh, of like your portion of the internet, um, which was not the original intent of it. Um, So there's kind of this ideological conflict going on in the world too, uh, where the authoritarian governments and regimes are trying to uh, convince let's say the developing parts of the world of like, Hey, you should follow our model, um, take more control, censor what you don't like, um, you know, squash pro-democracy protests if that goes against your regime. And then over here in America and uh, in our Western allies are trying to push against that and say, no, let's keep it open so that people all over the world have access to the right information, real information um, to enable them to make good decisions and uh, and and have you know freedom of the internet, basically. So I think it, it's an ideological thing, but it also comes down to uh, what are we willing to do to, let's say, monitor or 
analyze or control it. <laughs> yeah, and I, don't, I don't know how deep I want to go with this. We'll see where it goes, I guess. But I, one thing I remember very clearly from our first conversation with it was the concept of uh, micro internets. Yeah. And you raised that to me and it's first I'd heard of it where, so at the grand scale, I think China has their own internet, right? But within regions, people have their own segments of the internet or networks anyway, that provide them a place to share and transact and do whatever they're going to do there. Uh, and I, I guess within that, and we see that in, I don't know if I want to say it or not, but Truth Social, right, where it's a community creating a network that repeat those folks who want to join that can share that information. Um, and then we see other, other places where information may not make it uh, to everybody because it mm -hmm. is flagged as misinformation or disinformation. Um, and others where it isn't flagged and it does make it and the harm uh, comes from that as it, as it does. So I guess my, my question is micro networks, micro internets, whatever you want to call them. And this idea that people can, can create their own little worlds if they want to, so they aren't censored, so they can share facts and non-facts as, as they feel to freely. Mm -hmm. um, how does that play into where things are headed? I'm glad you asked that. I actually just finished a big research report, which should be out public soon, and it's about the technological decoupling process that happen is happening in the world. So it's like, okay, let's say Russia invaded Ukraine and corporations, some of them are complying with sanctions. Like, okay, we can't do business with certain companies in Russia. And sometimes that compromises the business. So they decide, let's just exit Russia altogether. Let's pull out of that market. Other companies do it to stand up for human rights. Like, uh, you know, the war on Ukraine is wrong. So we're going to pull our business out of Russia. Um, so there, there's like many different ways to go about doing that and why companies make those decisions. It's, it's a business risk decision, basically. Um, and I just did this research. It's really fascinating about the history of ideological conflict between China and the US, but China and the greater world as well. And how many companies don't feel comfortable complying with the laws and the rules of the Communist Party of China. So they have decided to exit the Chinese market. And it's this research is all about like, what are the impacts on companies around the world, global enterprises? Um, on one extreme, if they completely withdraw, which we're calling reshoring, like let's say they're reshoring, like bringing the business back to their home country or moving it to a neighboring country with less severe laws. Um, that is very disruptive to the business, but it could be to their advantage security-wise. And on the other end, those companies that decide to stay inside those, those nations like Russia or China and have to comply with the government there and their laws, they could be at significant security risk for cyber espionage, for disinformation, um, data theft by those governments. Um, so it's really interesting from the corporate perspective, but it's even more interesting to hear from people that live within those societies. Um, you know, their perspectives are very unique. Some of them say, well, I'm just used to it. 
I just, I don't know what I don't know. Like if the Chinese government is censoring Google, Facebook, all these other companies, and I don't really know what I'm missing because we have native versions of these platforms where I get domestic news and information. So it's interesting sometimes to see how people's views are different on things like human rights violations and privacy um, if they live in that little state-owned bubble of the internet. Whereas those of us that have free access to, let's say, the dark web, uh, and you can see all kinds of stuff, you can even find you know, classified leaks of information. You can see what cyber criminals are doing and all kinds of information. Like there are people that log on to the dark web illegally from, from countries like China or Vietnam because they want to understand what's going on in the rest of the world. Interesting dynamics there all the way from the personal level, all the way up to corporate. Yeah. No, uh, go ahead, Marco. No, if I start here, I'm never going to end. So you, you go. <laughs> All right. Well, I, I think because you, you touched on one point right at the very end, which was the, the individual. And yes, I can see in, in the scenarios that you presented, um, companies making decisions both for near-term uh, sustainability, but perhaps even longer-term sustainability. And... And I'll make the connection to environmental, social, and governance (ESG) and some of the some of the trends in in that space, where consumers are asking the providers or their services and deliverers of the products to make those choices. So mm-hmm. even if it is a tough choice uh, for an organization to say we're not interested in being part of uh, that regime's uh, control or follow those policies or be uh, uh, or be at risk for whatever misinformation might impact our business. Um, our customers are asking us to do that. How, mm-hmm. uh, do, do you see much, perhaps, I don't know if you have a global view of this, but in the U.S. versus other regions, are the consumers calling for this as well? Yeah, we're seeing that, especially related to social media. U.S. consumers and U.S. social media users really put a lot of pressure on the platforms and the companies to be open and let let them say what they want to say because, well, it always for Americans it always comes back to freedom of speech, um, and I think there's an interesting dynamic there. They're talking about a private company that can create whatever rules they want for their own platform. Nobody is really technically um and how how, what's the word they're they're not um they don't have like a right to say whatever they want on that platform they don't even have the right to be a user on that platform if they break the platform's terms of service so it's like there are rules and i think americans and many people in the free world is like freedom of speech i should be able to say whatever i want in this public forum but it's a private company and a private platform that is accountable to the government in their country. So is, let's say. Is there a digital public forum? Because what, what you're describing then is whoever builds the tech, unless the government builds it, and or, or if there's a, maybe that's what the, the call for a free open internet is globally. Yeah. Because <laughs> I don't, I don't know, as soon as a company builds the tech, they control the, the narrative, yeah. they're the rules anyway. 
That's an interesting question too, because you've got, let's say forums like Reddit, Quora, whatever, uh, discussion forums that are on websites that are funded or sponsored by something. Let's even say it's a nonprofit, um, but they're hosted on somebody's infrastructure. So oftentimes the hosts are held responsible for, hey, what's being posted on this chat? Things can go awry pretty fast, like we've seen on 4chan or uh, the Donald.win during the election season. Uh, it, they they tout being a very open forum where you can pretty much say whatever you want, like the Chans or the Quins. Um, however, once some really unsavory material starts being posted on there, then law enforcement gets involved. And that's when things get get a little spicy. <laughs> um, so I think it's interesting because you got the private company dynamic and that's a, a definitely like a Western model of the internet. It's open to whatever, but if you break the law, we're going to hold you accountable for that. And, and that's where we're struggling is like, is it illegal to spread false information that leads to violence or that leads to an insurrection uh, and, and illegal activity? Let's say swatting when people prank call the police and say like, there's something really bad happening at this house and they send a SWAT team oh, yeah, to that yeah. house when actually that thing was not true. But then eventually they go do something else somewhere else because the SWAT teams, it's been diverged, <laughs> right? Yeah. Something like yeah. that. Well, uh, I think I've heard of a journalist. Dangerous. That, so yeah. It's dangerous if they go in and, and the victim of the swatting is innocent and they're, they're like got a gun and they're ready to defend their house. And all of a sudden a SWAT team comes in, people can get killed. I, I'm not, I can't recall if that has resulted in death, but I'm, I'm sure there's been some major incidents. Um, so it's like, at what point does false information become violence? And as a professional analyst looking for this stuff, that's where our focus is, is like, when does, when does an idea become extreme and when, when does this extremism turn into radicalism where all the sudden large parts of our population are believed something untrue and becoming violent as a result of that? That's where we're trying to minimize the impact of disinformation and raise awareness so we can like kind of shake people out of it and say, no, this is not true. <laughs> Don't go do this yeah. violent thing. It's not worth it well you know i always go back to maybe because it's my political science background but i go back to the social contract that we have when we live together and where you know your freedom ends or has a limit where you infringing and invading my freedom to do something mm -hmm. and you can apply this to pretty much anything from wearing a mask to <laughs> lying out loud to uh, you know, intruding in other people's property because if you're like, well, it's my freedom to come in your property, you know, but it is my freedom to have my own property. So somebody has to enforce that. Yeah. And where I'm going with this is that with the internet and the social media, we kind of find ourselves, I think, in a position where we kind of are renegotiating this social contract as we go. There mm -hmm. are things that we didn't expect that were possible 20, 30 years ago. There was like, 
newspapers that are licensed newspaper. And if you're going to pretend to be a newspaper, people would say, well, okay, you have the freedom to do this, but you're not recognized as a newspaper, so you're not a legitimate source of information. And people will be educated about that, and there will be a civil responsibility for mm -hmm. what you do as a journalist. And so now I feel like there's this like kind of like far west with no rules, and <laughs> we're trying to figure out what what to do. It's like the wild and, wild west. And and this is my kind of my question for you is one thing is to choose like okay I'm gonna go in this social media platform because everybody's like me and I just want to hear that. I'm going to join a community, at whatever you want, of like-minded people. Yeah. They're saying exactly what I want to hear. It's amazing. Exactly. But but this we've always done that. That's why you're a member of a club or member of a community. And, yeah. you know, that's very much human. Yeah. But what is, what is not eventually human is when this is a lie because maybe it's manipulated by... Right. Another state, maybe right. by doing that, you're manipulating uh, information, uh, elections, and all of that. And I'm unconnecting again to where we started years ago. Like, where do you find the attribution of this? Is just some crazy dude that created a club of, you know, the Hellfires Club or whatever it is, or is actually an instrument of another country that is invading, mm -hmm. you know? culturally, mm -hmm. your own domain? Well, I think the answer to this is why cybersecurity analysts have been enlisted to analyze disinformation, because it happens on digital infrastructure. Oftentimes, attribution comes down to what infrastructure are they using? Where is it hosted? Um, and for me, what I like to do is narrative analysis. I like to focus in on the story. Uh, and that's more of a psychological operations thing. Like in the military, we have a history of doing psyops. It's, uh, you know, winning the hearts and minds of people. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that's what China's really good at right now around the world is influencing the world towards positive views of the CCP and, and the communist way of governance. Uh, and, and I say that because I specialize in China. So that's where my focus is. So I focus in on what narrative um, is being told that benefits the CCP. And they have standards. They talk about it in their, uh, their policies and their documents. They outline very clearly, like, here's our propaganda strategy. And oftentimes the narratives align with those strategies. So for me, I'm looking at Who's telling these stories? Who does it benefit? And then we kind of hone in on the inauthentic accounts. Um, so for us, it's like kind of pairing together the, the factors like what infrastructure are they using? Um, if it's also, we know that it's, let's say, we know that this network is using the same IP addresses and some fake news sites, and it's all hosted on Russian IP addresses and infrastructure that they're cyber attacks also come from, then we're like, okay, there's a, a likelihood. And, you know, we use analytical language, like a high likelihood that this is a Russian state sponsored operation because it's the same uh, narrative they've been telling. It benefits them in this way. It's hosted on this infrastructure. 
Um, you know, there's a variety of factors that we take into consideration. Um, and, and, you know, like each, each nation, each of these nation state threats, um, they have their own little signatures about how they do things. Russia is really great at using forged documents. Um, they create all kinds of fake videos, fake photos, and forged documents to create the appearance of things that are not actually happening that make their enemies look bad. And that's what they do in our elections as well. Um, they'll do hack and leak operations and things like that to uh, reveal secrets and coerce and manipulate their adversaries. China's really good at using a global network of influencers that they pay to promote um, a positive view of China and deny human rights violations that are actually happening in real life. So um, they each have their own little signature. We just try to co combine all these different factors into a big picture look of how are they conducting this operation? What is their objective? And how can we disrupt it? <laughs> Right. So let, let me go right here, because in redefining society, uh, I am imagine and I know that our audience may not be the expert cybersecurity professional in the community. Right. And it's more the everyday person. Mm -hmm. And so just the idea of understanding how there could be a walled Internet in China, when we know the internet is is open, it could be very very hard to to understand. Yeah. So, without going too deep, can you can you explain in a, you know in a very simple language how is this even possible, and mm -hmm. how what is the technology that that can be used to do that, and what is the technology that can be used like you know the dark web to evade from it? Yeah. Um, I'm guessing this could be a question in some listener right now. Yeah, absolutely. That it's it's a great question. Um, imagine that your internet is just very limited to um, news and sources that your government approves of, and all of the companies that fill your internet with information are also um, either sponsored by the government or partially owned by the government. And nobody's allowed to put any information out that makes the government look bad. Um, no bad talking of government leaders. But if, sorry, but if the internet is open, how do you block that? Right. So like they a, have, okay, <laughs> the actual like border. Right. Yeah, it's like, it what? is very Why? much How? like an internet border wall. They call it the hmm. Great Firewall, which is, yeah. you know, a take on the Great Wall of China. Um, <laughs> right. And the way they have it set up is data centers all over China where they filter all the information on the internet through those data centers. And they block certain websites, they block certain applications, and they have probably, I I'm going to guess, thousands of um, government employees that are paid to detect and censor certain information from forums and social media and and the internet that they are allowed to use so the government has eyes all over the internet within china and immediately even if conversations are using code words to criticize the party or to criticize 
uh, you know, Xi Jinping, the president, they will immediately remove that from the internet, delete it. Sometimes they will delete your account. And if they find out who you are talking bad about the government, they decrease your social credit score, which is basically used to approve you for loans, to approve you for a home, uh, all different types of things. So they have this system of consequences if you don't follow the rules. Uh, the and that includes police. internet. <laughs> that includes internet. That's incredible. And uh, I mean, you point out that there are government employees monitoring this stuff too. And I can only imagine it doesn't just stop at monitoring blocking. They, they probably use that to their advantage to create additional content to maybe counter messages that are coming in. Uh, yes. And perhaps even change them and let them through <laughs> in yes. a positive way. Like one good example is the Chinese government's response to COVID-19. Um, they controlled the pandemic very well up until the Olympics because they really wanted to host a successful Winter Olympics, which they did. But once the Olympics was over, um, they dealt with the onset of the Omicron variant or Omicron, however you pronounce it. Um, and they're still battling huge outbreaks where they're shutting down entire cities of millions of people. Um, so they're still doing very um, like strict lockdowns sometimes locking down entire factories or business buildings and locking everybody in for days at a time. Um, they have like COVID lockdown camps where they isolate people in, in individual cells that are very much like jail, jail cells. So as you can imagine, after months and months of this and their zero COVID policy, the Chinese people are getting frustrated. Um, they're upset. It's disrupting family, work, finances, economy, all this stuff. So if they go on the internet and they start talking, uh, you know, criticizing the government's COVID-19 policy, it's immediately censored, but they're also targeted for uh, further law enforcement surveillance. Um, and, and, you know, there's a lot of outspoken journalists who are banned from China. Uh, I could go on and on. The, the consequences are pretty severe. So, so what, it definitely what translates... What are, what are the chances that this is going to hold? You know, there's the saying that, you know, the, the truth eventually will come out, that, you know, that the oppression eventually will create a rebellion and so forth. And I, I'm just saying in general, in a world so connected, it's very hard to, to think that they'll, they'll succeed in a very long run to, to stop this. Uh, truth from coming out yeah um the technology that's a really good point what the, and you mentioned earlier the counter narrative so what they tell the people in china is like we are being a responsible government taking control of this to help us in the long term and they criticize the united states um for not handling it well actually for being the worst in the world that that's what they say um, because we've had so many deaths from COVID-19. Uh, and so they promote within China, they talk bad about liberal countries that, you know, just kind of, um, don't, they, they don't have strict rules on wearing masks or, uh, testing. Um, and they definitely brag on their own system of being more responsible. 
and they say, oh, the rest of the world is worried about human rights. Well, how can they say that when they've let over a million people die from COVID-19? So it's this whataboutism they play mm-hmm. back and forth. And within China, um, I, don't, I don't know if there's a general consensus, but that's what they're hearing. That's the story they're hearing is we have to do what's right for our country, for our people. Um, so wear a mask, stay in when you're sick, you know, lock down when you're told to lock down, just obey the rules because this is what's good in the, in the long run. So, but this narrative, uh, it, it repeats, now, now I'm going back to smaller group. Like we went from small to global to, now we're going to go back to smaller again, but not too small. I'm thinking elections in a, in a country like parties, they always try to bring their own narrative. I mean, mm-hmm. I'm looking at it right now in Italy that we have yet again another election coming up because, you know, the, they were not happy with that government. <laughs> and, and you know, and of course, there is the left, there is the right, and everybody has his own narrative about, you know, if they win, this will happen. If we win, this will happen, and you should be scared. So it's not just China. I mean, China, it's, it's impressive because it's such a large country, such an important role in our economy. Like, you know, a company that decide to leave China, they... They also leave a lot of business. That's that's for sure. A lot of infrastructure that they created in the past 30, 40, 50 years or so. Mm-hmm. But but even at a local level, where I want to go is there is always this dynamic of let me tell you my story, believe my story, listen to my story. Mm-hmm. So until we can prove that your story is fake or a lie, or a semi-lie, then I, I can't open people's eyes, mm-hmm. right? The problem is that sometimes people's eyes stay closed even when you've spluttered the, <laughs> the truth in front of, of them. Yes. Right? So, for example, technology like, you know, fake videos, uh, deep fakes that I was reading not like two days ago and how now they're really turning mainstream and they're very, very hard to detect. Yeah. And this is not just about making an old actor coming back to life in a movie. This is about putting president on a stage saying something that never said. Absolutely. So tell me a little bit about where are we going with this and how the security um, community is, it's a, bottling this yeah these deep fake videos and photos are produced with technology they're produced with algorithms photos uh all different kinds of data so we are literally trying to combat it with technology we're creating counter programs and counter algorithms to detect when things are fake or to detect anomalies in the code that i mean it sounds so matrixy doesn't it (laughs) But we're it's trying true. to like identify those <laughs> those weird those but weird things. But it's true. That's the scary like, part. Something's not right in this code. Like a video would normally look like this, but mm. this one looks different. This one looks like it was pasted together like a Frankenstein <laughs> video. Yeah, but, too but, too but perfect you see, or too imperfect. Yeah. Yeah. But you see that in the construction of the video. I mean, the the end result is flawless. Almost. It is flawless. I watched a video the other day 
of this young lady who I, I don't even know what she does for a living, but she found all these different open sources, like tools in the internet that are free to use to compile uh, of a photo and a video that looks so real. She created this fake person. It's a man with her personality and her quirks and things. She recorded herself doing these video motion things, put a different person's face on it. Like not a real person, but a digitally created fake face. And she created a video in a room that looked so convincing. I could not tell it was fake. The, the singing voice, Tom Cruise. Have you ever seen that one? Yeah. That's so crazy. crazy. So it's so real that when when you're watching news or you're watching YouTube video, let's say, oh, I want to subscribe to this guy's podcast, finding out that that guy is not a real person would be devastating. Like you're literally getting catfished on a podcast or, or a, a video. Um, it, it's devastating. It's really difficult to detect. So as soon as somebody suspects something is wrong with it, if they report it to the platform, it gives us analysts and researchers an opportunity to look into it and prove it right or wrong. But here's the danger. People believe what they see and hear first and what they see and hear the most. So if a, if a bad guy or a, a threat actor uh, convinces you, like gets that thing out there on social media and it goes viral that's a danger to your society because all of a sudden all these people are believing the information that this fake character is putting out. Uh, and I, I, I'm concerned about how this is going to translate into virtual reality. <laughs> I've got a daughter, a 12 year old daughter who uses Oculus to play VR games. Um, and I've already seen a lot of security issues that I'm very concerned about for her personal safety um, because even if you're not like actually physically engaging with somebody in these games, it feels like a violation of your personal space when they're coming at you or, or when they're engaging with you. So I'm, con I'm concerned about these fake videos and images turning into, uh, you know, characters in virtual reality. It's like, ah, you have a huge audience there to influence people uh, of something whatever that objective is. And even, even if you don't, one doesn't care about your personal space being invaded, the platform is collecting everything about you. <laughs> That's <laughs> true. So that it could create another version of you if they wanted to. Yeah. It's true. It looks and sounds and acts and says, Oh shit, <laughs> at this particular yeah. point when, when it scares you or whatever. And uh, maybe, maybe that's a whole nother conversation we could we could get into um i want to i want to i don't know how much longer you want to go here but i want to bring it kind of back to the attribution point because we we just talked about the somebody creating someone or something pretending to be real that's not um and we tend to believe it right until until we don't Mm -hmm. told not to and even then perhaps we don't even but there and Marco mentioned it earlier people notably politicians will say things whatever they can and want to uh, to meet their meet their end game which is to get reelected or whatever mm -hmm. and I guess where I want to go with this is 
people they they are attributed they are real right they have the little blue blue check on the platform and and people know them and they can see that they are they who they are and they're saying whatever they want to say real or not mm-hmm. and then so that in itself is a problem but then there's the the explosion of that message retweeted reposted brought to other platforms and linked back and now it becomes a source of of information across other platforms reaching other people typically through technology like bots and things like that so how how do we combat that from a societal perspective because i think generally we want to believe right and we're going to trust who we trust and whatever message that is that we believe and that we hear from that trusted source that gets amplified it's only going to continue to reinforce our perspective so is there a way to counter scale <laughs> things i don't know if anti-bots is, is perhaps one thing but is there a way to anti-scale this stuff education <laughs> mm-hmm. i don't think we have a clear answer on this yet but i know it's being addressed from several different points of view um digital platforms are working towards automatically flagging certain information that is spreading virally and being reported as disinformation. Um, A lot of them are relying on really good, nonpartisan, unbiased fact-checking from outside organizations that are neutral. And I think that's really important. As researchers, we also rely, we are fact-checkers, but we also rely on other fact-checkers to check us. Like, we compare our analysis to theirs. Like, okay, yes, this is with high confidence. This is false information. Um, and I think that helps. I did read, I've been reading some academic research lately. We've got a lot of colleges and universities all over the world that are tackling this problem and putting their heads together with the private sector and with governments around the world. Like how do we address this holistically? And a lot of those involve interventions on social media, which is a flag or something below the post that says, this has been flagged as false information, read here for more. Or it opens up a whole video on, this is all the data we compiled to prove that this is not true. Um, And also there's interventions that say, are you sure you wanna share this? This has been proven to be untrue. Uh, and, And studies are showing that people will more often than not they will not amplify that post if they read the information that proves it's wrong. So that gives me a little bit of hope. <laughs> um, and, and, you know, and awareness, guess, like Marco said, it's education. We're trying to, um, you know, put out free information uh, that's easy for people to understand on why this is a danger to our world, to our society, to our democracy and how they can help individually by not amplifying, uh, you know, that false information. Yeah. So I see that working where it's something is presenting a fact or something happened, some research was done. Where it gets a little scarier for me is when it's not a fact-driven point. Mm-hmm. It's an opinion or a mindset or... Uh, just some some uh, some general message that isn't rooted in information. It's just 
somebody wants to say something meaningful, hateful, uh, counteractive, <laughs> counterintuitive, whatever it is. And there's nothing to check it against. It's yeah. that person saying something that, again, people trust that person or they, they believe in their beliefs of, of that person. And therefore, they're going to run with whatever is said. And it's not, again, not rooted in any data. So there's nothing to fact check against. And, I, and it, to me, is that mindset of, of society, which happens to be very polarized in the U.S. And You're right. I think being even more polarized and on the global stage as well. Yeah, not everybody's open to hearing opposing views or hearing that the information they're sharing or believing is not true. Right. They're not always open to that. Uh, I always tell people if it if you're reading something on social media and it's um, creating some very negative emotions in you, like you're getting angry, frustrated, you want to fight about it, take a break, come back to it later when you're not frustrated and emotional, maybe do a little fact checking on your own and just look for like legitimate, trustworthy sources. Uh, and I always encourage people to look at the media bias chart and try to get your information from news organizations that are less biased and more truthful and factual in their reporting. Um, I find those to be great sources of, of fact checking. But those like aren't sensational and they're, 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 they don't feel as good as the other ones that are, right. That are biased. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, this, I love this conversation and that's why I'm looking at 52 minutes of us going at this and, and I love it because we, we could be having this sitting in a coffee shop and, and just chatting about this. I hope people enjoy our conversation. I, I want to end it with a couple of thoughts, if you don't mind. Uh, one is about the future and one is about the past. Uh, I have a, a Roman uh, reference for it. Uh, so the future is, I like the fact that the community has tools to find out what technology is being used to fake something. And, and I think that's great. I'm thinking, you know, you said university colleges of studying this researcher, and I'm assuming hopefully with artificial intelligence and machine learning, we can even fact check mm -hmm. even faster. And that's great. But when you tell someone that is a lie and they still want to believe it, I don't know what to do about that. So mm -hmm. I'm going to refer to the past. Uh, I don't know if you guys are familiar, but in, in a square in, in Rome, there is a, a circular statue, and it's called La Bocca della Verità, the mouth of truth. And the legend says that if you put your hand in this mouth of the represent a, a god, if you're a liar, or if you say a lie while your hands in is there, the mouth will shut and it cut your hand. And there is actually in the movie Roman Holiday, there is a scene with uh, with uh, Gregory Peck and Catherine Hepburn, I mean, Audrey Hepburn. And uh, so my point is, maybe it's our nature that is going to resolve this problem in the end, because I think that even if we lie, there's nothing we respect more than the truth. Yeah. And maybe we kind of forgot that, you know, maybe because it gives us the moment of fame on social media, maybe because taking an opinion, a position, even if it's wrong, it gives you those 600 likes and retweets and shit like that, that 
but in the end, we're screwing our society. So I, I hope that we all come together in the end. And maybe we create some of this uh, mouth of truth and and take a you know take a risk and say, well, if I lie, my hand's gone. Bye bye. I believe truth will win in the end, and I think that's because we have a lot of people around the world that want to hold each other accountable for the truth. So I, I'm hopeful. Yeah. And here, here's some truth I'm gonna bestow bestow upon you. I. I'm thrilled that we met you, Charity, Aww. so many years ago. Same. And uh, I'm glad that we've been able to keep in touch and have these continued conversations. I'm also going to say that uh, some of the best food experiences I've had were in Singapore. <laughs> it's uh, not lying. That's, it's not lying. I don't know if you can fact check that or not. but uh, no, I was there. That's my that position. is true. <laughs> <laughs> that's my position on it. So, um yeah, and then nobody respects me, so who cares? So the survey <laughs> says that is not disinformation. That is true. <laughs> so no, but in in all seriousness, uh, I mean, this is important stuff, and it's not gonna. If there is a resolution, it's not gonna happen overnight, and who knows what it's gonna look like. But uh, to your point, Marco, education, even even if we can't educate on every single point that needs to be evaluated i think generally educating folks that that this is the story at the moment uh is is an important thing and i'm uh, thankful charity that you help us uh, bring this over to uh to folks to raise awareness for my pleasure thank you guys so much it's always it's always great to talk to y'all Awesome. Uh, and for everybody listening, we hope you enjoy our little chat here. Make you think that uh, when we think it's a successful podcast, and I think there is a lot to think about <laughs> what we said in, in this 56 minutes and going. And so stay tuned. There'll be more conversations and uh, a few notes here if you want to get in touch with the charity and, um, and follow her on our social media. Just check the notes and uh, stay with us. Bye-bye. Bye. BugCrowd's award-winning platform combines actionable contextual intelligence with the skill and experience of the world's most elite hackers to help leading organizations identify and fix vulnerabilities, protect customers, and make the digitally connected world a safer place. Learn more at bugcrowd.com. Black Cloak provides concierge cybersecurity protection to corporate executives and high net worth individuals to protect against hacking, reputational loss, financial loss, and the impacts of a corporate data breach. Learn more at blackcloak.io. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you learned something new and this podcast made you think, then share ITSPMagazine.com with your friends, family, and colleagues. If you represent a company and wish to associate your brand with our conversations, sponsor one or more of our podcast channels. We hope you will come back for more stories and follow us on our journey. You can always find us at the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society.